0: welcome back everybody this is go help yourself a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less i'm lisa Linky and across from me Underneath a waffled blanket is Misty Stinnett.
1: Yes, this is me. Um, I live here now. <laughs> I wanted to be even more constrained and confined. So I'm now living under a blanket inside of my small room. Yeah, there's a couple um, uh, overturned bar stools. You've really
0: MacGyvered a situation there.
1: Listen, we no longer record for health reasons, COVID-19 reasons, in the friendly confines of Fairfax Village Studios, Mm -hmm. so I have made quite a contraption. I feel like the game Mousetrap really prepared me for this, but I have made quite a contraption of there's like a blanket over my head, there's pillows everywhere, I have put a big thick cardigan over my desk. I am doing my best to like MacGyver dampening the sound. So that we sound as good as we possibly can for you and these surreal times. You sound great to me. Misty loves you guys
0: so much. I am like, meh, because it's so hot in my place that my uh, landlord, Zoe, even though the air conditioning is off, is rolling up against the unit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she's like, I need to get up there. Okay. Back to the matter at hand. This is a weekly self-help uh, podcast and we're comedic in nature. So you're going to laugh. I'm sorry. There's no way around it. <laughs> we review and talk about a new uh, or popular or classic self-help book every week on Friday. And every Tuesday we have our mini where we check in on our homework and other cool stuff about self-help. So we're actually creating two times a week for you people. We love you so much that Misty gets under her waffled blanket two times a week. Um, and I
1: get hot. Ooh. Uh, Thank you. Anyway. Excuse me. Let's say more. Thank you. But each Friday, we're here bringing you the hits the highs,
0: the yays, as well as the, oh my God, please don't buy this books uh, (laughs) reviews (laughs) so that you can go about your busy life and get this life-changing, life-altering self-help perspective or avoid that life-changing, life-altering life self-help yeah, Maybe it'll you alter used. your
1: life for the worse. We don't know. It
0: really can. Um, but we also aren't able to cover everything in an hour or less. So please, if you enjoy what you're hearing, buy the book and support the author. Um, and in show notes, we always give you a link uh, to do so. Um And speaking of supporting the authors, let's support the authors of this, podcast by just giving us a simple flick and a click of a rate and review uh maybe i mean a subscribe a push of a subscribe button gosh darn it that would really help your friends misty and lisa wow i think that's the nicest you've ever asked for it
1: yeah i mean seriously what the fuck are you
0: Okay. Okay. Um, (laughs) there, that's me. Uh, I think that's basically it. We cussed, obviously. And, um, just a timestamp. This is August 3rd in the 2020 coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. The space time continuum that's twisting upon itself. So when you hear this, it may be very, very different. It's like 96 days to the election right now. So it'll probably be like 66 days to the election then. So just a quick plug. If you haven't registered to vote, you can go to vote.org. Make sure you're registered. Make sure your voter registration is active.
1: Also, let me offer that Lisa and I will personally virtually hold your hand and help you register to vote. You can reach us at DM us at go help yourself podcast on Instagram or my personal Instagram is at Misty Rose, M-I-S-T-Y-R-O-S-E. Lisa's is is at its linky, I-T-S-L-I-N-K-E. If you direct message us and you say, Hey, I don't know how to register to vote or I just want some company or I'm not sure. I'm feeling daunted. We will personally interact with you. Until you are registered to vote and you feel great about it, I will show up at your door and hold you to it
0: under duress. Just kidding. Um, but what we <laughs> but also is that important? Do, <laughs> it is that important. To us. If you um, if you tag us when you post on your social media uh, evidence that you've registered to vote or you've verified your voter registration, we will repost it in our story. Oh
1: hell yeah, hell mm-hmm. yeah! Because you know. There's a lot of um, people who are surprised to learn they've been purged from the voter, the voter yeah. registration. Yeah, So yeah. let's all double check. Anyway, I'm not in fight or flight. You are. Okay. <laughs> I'm in freeze. Misty, what book have you brought for us today? I have brought to you the number one Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Obstacle is the Way. The timeless art of turning trials into triumph by Ryan Holiday. Uh, longtime lawyer listeners will
0: be pleased because we have a new a new addition to our repertoire, which
1: is <laughs> Misty. I'm going to ask you: Can you summarize the premise of this book in one sentence? Yes, I sure can. Um, I'm excited we added this element in because I feel like it's a it's a fun tease and it's a challenge mm-hmm. for us as well to try and like encapsulated in one sentence, which of course, is reductive, but how, ooh, say reductive, uh, <laughs> of fun. So I would say in one sentence, this book is about, you can change your perspective to view every obstacle and failure as an opportunity to get better.
0: All right. Lisa I'm just like melted it. a little
1: on screen. <laughs> Great. Tell me about the prices of the book. Yeah. So the hardcover is $17.69. The paperback is still $16.24. This was published in 2014. Yeah. The Kindle is $5.99. Audio book yeah. is $12.99. No. And the Overdrive app is free, but it uh, it was about an eight-week wait on the LA library system. Was it worth it? I did not wait. I paid for the... Audiobook. Okay. You know, I did. I, I like to support these others when I can. But for anybody who's new, there is an app called Overdrive. I used to plug it every single episode. I love it so much. It's an absolutely free app. You sign up to it with your own local library card and it syncs to your library. And for free, you can check out digital titles or audiobooks to your smart device or Kindle if you have one of those. And they lend it to you for three weeks, and then it goes back. So there's always a long wait for books. So what I like to do is go in and place holds on like 20 titles at a time. And then they'll sort of trickle in and email me when they're ready to be read. And then you always have a book coming, which is exciting, and it's free.
0: Yeah, and we had a really awesome listener. Her name is a escaping a me, me now. It's escaping it's me now. It's escaping me now.
1: Escaping me.
0: It's this is the not a good sign. My brain is so real. Is not a good sign. Um, at the top of the episode,
1: <laughs> but basically,
0: she reminded us that some communities have very robust and well-funded library systems, and some do not. Right. But if you are near a university or college. Uh, Often that Overdrive app can link into their system, and then you'll have access to many, many more. So thank you to that longtime loyal listener for pointing that out. She knows who she is, and she's awesome. All right, Misty, talk to me about this book. Give me some first impressions here.
1: Yeah, okay. So the first thing I'll say is that this book is extremely practical, but it does have this... Right. But it does have this overarching life philosophy. So it's based on ancient works of Stoicism. And so it is very philosophical, and yet every step is extremely practical. So it's one of those books that really toggles back and forth. It reminded me of a more approachable, shorter version of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, but this was published more than two years before, which is very interesting. Maybe Mark Manson read it and was like, this is great. Well, remember ideas, according
0: to Elizabeth Gilbert and Big Magic are just floating around and they will... And they
1: found Ryan Holiday and Mark Manson. (laughs) Well, they found both of them, but maybe one of them executed first. Thank you so much. So it's currently, currently, even though it was published in 2014, number one on Amazon in philosophy movements books. So it's 224 pages. The audiobook is six hours and seven minutes, but that includes about an hour and a half interview between the author, Ryan Holiday, and Tim Ferriss at the end. So it's actually quite a short book. So Tim Ferriss is the behemoth author of The 4-Hour Workweek, The 4-Hour Body, The 4-Hour Chef. He's got one of the most popular podcasts in the world, and he's actually listed as the publisher of the audiobook. Even though the publisher is Penguin Random House. He's so, doing his four-hour work week right there. <laughs> Excuse me. That should not have caught me so off guard. But he um, is. So, you, so so the book is actually you know, four and a half hours. If you're it's very quick. So if you want to hear more about stoicism, Ryan's path to writing the book, how he met Tim Ferriss, et etc., that part of the audiobook might really appeal to you and you might want to get the audiobook instead of the book book. Also, the author reads the audiobook. He's got a decent speaking voice, but he's one of those people that sounds like he has a perpetual cold. I'm not going to judge, but that's good to know. It's just an observation. I enjoyed it. I would listen to it again. He suffers from allergies. Allergies to failure. So about the author. this.
0: <laughs> no, that should not have made me so happy.
1: <laughs> so this is... a. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit from his website, ryanholiday.net, a little bit from his Amazon Authors page, and a little bit from Wikipedia. So from his website himself, which will be in show notes, he says, I am Ryan Holiday, and I am a writer and media strategist. When I was 19 years old, I dropped out of college to apprentice under Robert Green, author of The 48 Laws of Power. I had a successful marketing career at American Apparel and went on to found a creative agency called Brass Check. I know, Lisa's grimacing. I know. There's a, already two things to grimace at. Uh his creative agency called Brass Check has advised clients like Google, Taser, and Complex, as well as many prominent bestselling authors, including Neil Strauss, Tony Robbins, and Tim Ferriss. I am the author of 10 books, including The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, The Daily Stoic, Conspiracy, and Stillness is the Key, which have sold more than 2 million copies in 30 languages and have a following among NFL coaches, world-class athletes, TV personalities – political leaders, and others around the world. I spend much of my time on a ranch outside Austin, Texas, where I do my writing and work in between raising cattle, donkeys, and goats. His Amazon author's page also adds that he is one of the world's foremost thinkers and writers on ancient philosophy and its place in everyday life. He is a sought-after speaker, strategist, and the author of many best-selling books. You can follow him at Ryan Holiday or subscribe to his writing at ryanholiday.net and dailystoic.com. And according to Wikipedia, Ryan Holiday is 34 years old and is currently a media columnist and editor-at-large for the New York Observer. He has been responsible for a number of media stunts, including when he worked for Tucker Max and has written extensively on the topic of media manipulation. (laughs) Okay. Your text earlier this week makes a lot of sense to me. (laughs) What did I text you? I don't remember. I fucking hate
0: Tucker Max. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I think I said, I'm loving the shade that this Amazon book review is throwing at. I hope they serve beer and hat. So just so you know, I I was going to save this for the end, but I guess I'll say it up front if anyone else has put the pieces together and is cringing a little bit. So first of all, Robert Greene and his book, The 48 Laws of Power is highly controversial because a lot of it is about just manipulation, underhanded tactics to get ahead. That's power. It didn't say the 48 Laws of Integrity. Thank you, to be fair. (laughs) And I I actually have a copy, and I opened it up a few times to be like, what are some of the laws, and was immediately repulsed. And then Tucker Max is the well-documented, misogynistic author of the book, I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. Mm -hmm. And Assholes Finish First is another book Mm -hmm. of his. And him being the director of American Apparel, American Apparel, uh, director of marketing. American Apparel absolutely got a lot of flack for their darkly sex-driven campaigns that and their sweatshops even though it was made in America. Oh really? Oh yeah, here in LA there's a huge sweatshop,
0: sweatshop industry in LA.
1: Okay. Already citing Robert Greene and Tucker Max as mentors is I found very surprising because I really liked this book. And as you're about to hear, I found it to be intersectional, inclusive, um, really meets you where you are in life. So just want to address that up front that maybe these men, um, taught him how to publish a book and how to reach a wide audience and not how to write manipulatively. Cause he doesn't, in my opinion, in this book, this is the only book of his I've read. So interesting when all those things are true. So this book is divided into three parts. Part one, perception. Part two, action. Part three, will. And he starts with a quote. The impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. And that's a quote from Marcus Aurelius. Okay. So... I want to say up front that while I typically do my own original notes and summary for every book, there are incredible summaries of this book online because so many people love it and have written about it. So some of the notes I'm using are from medium.com and directly from the author's website, dailystoic.com, because you can't get a better summary than from the author himself. Mm -hmm. So basically the thesis is overcoming obstacles is a discipline of three critical steps And this is how the book is structured. So it begins with how we look at our specific problems, our attitude or approach, then the energy and creativity with which we actively break them down and turn them into opportunities. And then finally, the cultivation and maintenance of an inner will that allows us to handle defeat and difficulty, because there are some obstacles that can't be overcome, right? Mm -hmm. Which I love that he acknowledges. So part one, perception. Perception is how we see and understand what occurs around us and what we decide those events will mean. In a nutshell, perception is our attitude toward any problem. Our perceptions can be a source of strength or of great weakness. If we are emotional, subjective, and short-sighted, we only add to our troubles. To prevent becoming overwhelmed by the world around us, we must, as the ancients practiced, learn how to limit our passions and their control over our lives. So, due to evolution, our brains are wired to focus on dangers and threats. While that may have been useful back in the caveman days, it isn't as helpful now. Most of our obstacles aren't life threatening anymore. Instead, they're mental, like a boss criticizing us at work or uh, someone we love breaking up with us. Therefore, we need to upgrade our brains with new programming to perceive modern obstacles effectively. So, to do that, he suggests that we need to go into the matrix. That's it. To get my brain upgraded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you do crazy cartwheels on like a stylish trench. Yes. Shooting bullets the whole time. And while you're doing all that, you're learning to practice new self-talk. I love it. And Lisa, you'll really, you will appreciate this so much. He says, it's simple, but it's not easy. Thank you. Also, this is reminding me a lot of Aristotle's way. Yes. So this is also, this is like... Socrates and Plato and like all the ancient philosophers. So it totally would. Yeah, absolutely. I think like Aristotle was one of the, one of the original, I just said one of the original
0: ancient (laughs) Stoicists. Bitch, he was the original (laughs) ancient
1: Thank you. I'm not well versed enough in Stoicism to know who was a Stoic and who wasn't. But But I think it's all those ancient Greeks. Yes, a hundred percent. And I was so surprised to learn that a lot of them didn't write anything down. And the only reason we have notes of their teachings is because their students took notes. (laughs)
0: Very few of them were prolific writers, but the rest of them, yeah, it was their students.
1: I think it was Socrates that didn't write anything down. Yeah, because all he did was ask questions. I mean, he he had it pinned down. Also, there was this really funny part in the book where he was like, was it? It was like Plato or Socrates. I'm sorry. I can't remember the specific philosopher, but one of the greats. And apparently his wife, he credits his wife as being like, super uptight and super like not happy and said that it gave him a chance to practice all of this all the time, <laughs> like, to practice letting go. Women are responsible for everything important in the world. Thank you so much. So this is a quote from the book. Our perceptions determine to an incredibly large degree what we are and are not capable of. In many ways, they determine reality itself. When we believe in the obstacle more than in the goal, which will inevitably triumph. He also says you will come across obstacles in life, fair and unfair, and you will discover time and time again that what matters most is not what these obstacles are, but how we see them, how we react to them and whether we keep our composure. Um, and throughout the book, he uses example after example of like great leader, great entrepreneur, people who really changed the world and the obstacles they faced. So, you know, he talks a lot about Steve Jobs, Ulysses S. Grant, big, Roman emperors. And it's like, you know, everybody told Steve Jobs, you are crazy to think that you can put a computer in everybody's hands. Like, that's insane. And he was actually let go from Apple because his sort of direct-to-consumer vision was seen as way too radical, which is insane when you think about it now because we all know how that turned out and that he was right. But it's really interesting to think that if Steve Jobs really believed that... He was also that, kind of a tyrant, and which is the other reason why they let him go. <laughs> Well, that too, that too. But like you know, if everybody like if he really bought into everybody's doubts about his vision, we would not be holding iPhones and it's true. Talking about it's our true. We need disruptors, so, right? So there's four things that we need to do according to Ryan Holiday when facing obstacles. One, we need to be objective. Two, control emotions. Three, have perspective. Four, focus on what can be controlled. So number one, be objective. Being objective means removing you from the picture. Just think about what happens when we give advice to others. Their problems are usually crystal clear to us. But when we think about our own problems, we carry so much baggage. To be objective, take your situation and pretend it's not happening to you, but rather to someone else. Quickly and dispassionately size up the situation. The more you practice this, the better you'll get. Number two, control emotions. Controlling your emotions means not panicking. Panic is the worst enemy because it muddles thinking. To overcome panic, we need to imagine a second self using contrarian questions and statements against the panicking self. So here's an example he gives in the book. Your panicking self is like, we lost money. And then your second contrarian self comes in and says, but aren't losses commonplace in business? And your panicking brain is like, yes. And your contrarian self says, are the losses catastrophic? And the panicking brain says, not necessarily. The contrarian self says, so this is not totally unexpected. Why are you getting so worked up over something that is at least occasionally supposed to happen? And the panicking brain goes, well, uh, right. So that's just a very simplified example of how you can do this. I mean, yes. Although we all know that logic cannot quell fear. The emotion has to be experienced. Exactly, And he actually says that in the book. He's like, feel your feelings, get upset. I'm not saying don't get emotional, but once you have done that, take a deep breath and start to move, you know, into a more dispassionate thing. So he's like, yeah. cry if you need to cry, scream if you need to scream. All right. Yeah. I mean, also, I'm just curious as to
0: why this all needs to happen internally and why there can't be a trusted or valued partner or, um, what's the word for some advisor who does oh, there
1: this? can no, okay. there can. But this is this is. He's talking about one tactic, and it is this contrarian self talk that can help talk us down from the ledge. Well, you'll see that my contrarian self talk already doesn't fucking like it. Thank you. Just there kidding.
0: You I see it. I'm my job for those of you who are new is to poke holes in anything. That's my oh. job in life. I just walk around poking holes in whatever I see: papers, banners, paper plates, paper cups, watering cans. I just poke holes and my big beef with self-help is that it's take one thing and apply it across the board like icing and that just doesn't work.
1: Yeah. And I don't think that's what this book is doing. I think this book says like, here are a bunch of tools I to that. try and do this. Yeah. I love I it love and that. I hate it. Yes. And so that's a super simplified version of the contrarian self-talk, but sure. you get the idea. So he says, when you have this kind of conversation with your panicking self, Those extreme, it can help the extreme emotions to dissipate a little, like when you start to go like, okay, let me see this from an objective point of view. Another option is to ask a question that Marcus Aurelius asks himself. Does what happened keep you from acting with justice, generosity, self-control, sanity, prudence, honesty, humility, straightforwardness? Ugh, this guy sounds like a drag. (laughs) Thank you. And super old. If not, (laughs) then get back to work. So number three, have perspective. Having perspective is about reframing the situation and finding the opportunities in your obstacle. If we can do that, obstacles become something we embrace rather than avoid. So here's another quote from the book. The struggle against an obstacle inevitably propels the fighter to a new level of functioning. The extent of the struggle determines the extent of the growth. The obstacle is an advantage, not adversity. The enemy is any perception that prevents us from seeing this. So the obstacle is the way. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. (laughs) (laughs) So he gives these examples, right, of like Helen Keller and Thomas Jefferson. So Thomas Jefferson realized very, very quickly that he was a terrible public speaker. So he threw himself into learning the craft of writing and became one of the greatest writers of his day and wrote the Declaration of Independence. And then Helen Keller, of course, was deaf and blind. So all she had was her writing. And then she became this and mute. Yes. Mm -hmm. And she became this revolutionary thinker and changed the way that we see people um, with disadvantages. So people enslaved others. That is correct. And you have to take everything into the context of the
0: time. But enslaving others did not prohibit him from becoming a masterful writer instead of an orator because he knew he was never going to be an orator.
1: Yes. So he says, let's look at a common example, a bad boss. The common self-talk is, this is hell. I'm so unlucky. I'm screwed. A more effective self-talk would be something like, My boss is so bad that I'm willing to quit. If I'm willing to quit, then I have a good reason to reach out to contacts elsewhere and find potentially better opportunities. While I'm looking for a new opportunity, I can experiment with different tactics of trying to get along with this current boss. If things get better, great. If not, I'll be prepared to move on. Okay, so here are some other examples from the book. You have a rival Great. They keep you alert, motivate you, toughen you, help you appreciate friends, and give you an antilog, which is a model of whom you don't want to become. Okay. That computer glitch erased your work? Good. Now you'll be twice as good by doing it again. That one really – that one – I've met a lot of resistance to that example. <laughs> I mean, it feels a little Pollyanna-ish, but I get it. It's a different it's, way yeah. of thinking. A hundred percent. Also, like if we had to re-record a podcast episode, which we've had to do a couple of times, it is always like, "Oh my god." <laughs> yeah, but then also, what's the
0: alternative? There is no alternative. So you just yeah, exactly. either yeah, you could do it begrudgingly, or you can do it in a
1: joyful in a joyful yeah. service to the Lord. <laughs> Thank you. And you can go. Okay. Well, maybe that second recording was better than the first. So. That business decision turned out to be a mistake. A scientist wouldn't be upset. He'd be happy that he made progress and you should too, right? You learned about what you shouldn't do. Someone's critical towards you. Good. Lower expectations are easier to exceed. Someone on your team is lazy. Good. That makes your accomplishments seem greater. Okay. I want to practice this. Misty throws some terrible things at me. Um, You just realize that your armpits smell really bad and you're on
0: a date. Great. They'll either love me or hate me. It makes my choice much easier. You just ran your car into your landlord's car. Great. He hates me already. Now he can evict me and I can take him to court. That's not, I don't. (laughs) Keep going. Keep going. Um, You haven't washed your hair in so long. It started to fall out. Fantastic. Eliminating the need for washing hair totally and saving the earth by reducing my water needs. Go
1: achieve. I feel great about it. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> These reframings, he says, aren't about begrudgingly accepting a situation to be okay. It's a complete flip from I don't like this to I can make this great. Now, you know, Who needs my hair? hackles. Who needs hair? <laughs> well, my hackles started raising because it's like, If you have something that's like emotionally tormenting, like I discovered my spouse is cheating on me or like I discovered my child is sick, you know, it's like. Or I discovered that my government is becoming a fascist regime. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I can find joy in that. Less choices to make. So you can you can see how like this is quote unquote simple, but it's really not easy. And I am currently looking for ways to reframe some of my own obstacles that are extremely triggering. And it's so annoying to think there's good that could come out of this.
0: Yes. And I also think sometimes you don't see the good until you're well past it. And also it's a it's a it's not a practice of a one question or a series of questions. It's a every day I'm gonna have to reframe
1: this probably. For the rest of my life. Constantly. Because yeah. think of how many obstacles, every single obstacle, you know, that you run into in a day. I forgot my wallet at home. I just got a flat tire. Oh, oh listen, I don't let have... Let talk about your, your memory with your wallet. And... Listen, pandemic brain is <laughs> real. No, I mean, I think you're right. What you're saying is right about what he's saying. Thank you. It takes enormous, enormous... Mental fortitude. And going back to what you were saying earlier, Lisa, I think reframing some of these will take a support system, <laughs> yeah. including a professional support system, because I feel like half of the therapists that I've had, no, excuse me, all of the therapists that I have approach problems in this way of going, like, you cannot change the world or events around you. All you can change is your own reaction to it. And when I first heard that, I was so annoyed. And then I was like, okay, this works. So damn it. <laughs> I know. So, number four. Focus on what can be controlled. The most harmful addiction is believing that we can change things outside our control. He says that this is where the serenity prayer is really helpful, which is, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So what are the things that we can control, according to Ryan Holiday and the Stoics? My butt. Our emotions? Your butt. That's, I speak for yourself. (laughs) So, our emotions, our judgments, our creativity, our attitude, our perspective, our desires, and our determination.
0: I can't control my, my
1: emotions or my desires. Well, probably not the very first wave that comes. First thought, so as my brilliant voice teacher, Matt Beisner, used to say, and I'm sure still says, you are not responsible for your first thought. We are all conditioned. We have biases. We have reactions. Yes. You are not responsible for your first thought. What you are responsible for is your second thought and your first action. I love that. You know, so if you think, that's not fair that I didn't get this part that I auditioned for. She sucks and I'm more talented than her. Yeah, that's what I always think. Thank you. You're not responsible for that. Your second thought, you can then go, okay, this part wasn't meant for me. I'm gonna get back to work. I'm gonna examine what went wrong and try and crush the next audition. And then your first right action is Would that. Be to Nancy Kerrigan, her knee, so that I can have the part. That feels right. I was gonna say. Yeah. So yes. So we're never I, I love that that idea that we're not responsible for our first thought because we can't help those or those no. first waves of emotion. But thinking like, okay, now I can talk to myself and see logic and go from there is yeah. empowering, yeah. I think. So what's out of our control? pretty much everything else other than that list. So the big ones are other people's emotions and judgments as well as disastrous events.
0: Remember Aristotle said, don't discount luck and unluckiness when you're contemplating making choices.
1: Absolutely. And what I loved about this part of the book is that he said, you cannot help what circumstances you're born into. Some people are born with a lot more privilege and freedom and just like a cushier lot in life. And we cannot choose the parents we get, how our childhood went, the color of our skin, how people feel about us. All we can do is control the way that we move through the world, that we choose to react to those things. And I just felt like that was a really nice caveat to put on it and Mm -hmm. did acknowledge the difficulties of where everybody's coming from. Yeah. So he says, once you can effectively perceive obstacles, your hands will be steadier. The next step is to act with those steady hands. So now we're in part two of three of the book, action. Action is all about breaking problems down and turning them into opportunities. Failure shows us the way by showing us what isn't the way, Mm -hmm. which is a really nice way to look at failure. Yeah. I had an administrator in college.
0: He was kind of a a friend, a connection. He was in the school of business and I was in the school of uh, liberal arts and sciences, but I was graduating and I said, I don't know what I want to be. And he said, I still don't know what I want to be. And I was like, (laughs) blown away because he was in his 50s. (laughs) And he said, but Lisa, every job that you take and realize it's not what you want to do is just as valuable as a job that you take and realize that it is aligned with something you want to do because it really helps you narrow out from this vast amount of choices. So you can't make a bad choice. Like It's okay.
1: I love that. That's uh, And how did you feel in that moment?
0: I felt like my whole orientation to the world shifted because the mm-hmm. pressure to make the right choice suddenly was he kind of like yeah and he was like no there will all, they will all be good choices
1: because you will learn something out of it and it will the path will reveal itself the right is the way thank you <laughs> I wish you all could see the eye contact she made with the camera she had her wide eyes on um, and that so and, and it did didn't it mm-hmm. you took a job that was like crush it was a great job but it was crushing your soul uh, yeah, that wasn't for many years later. Uh, I initially took a job as
0: a server and a bartender in Atlanta.
1: <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> Also, did, I found out that was not what I wanted to do. Very helpful. Yes, I think we all have spent a lot of time doing those jobs that we don't want to do. But I did pay off my party credit card from college, so that was useful. Wow. You must have had some good parties. Did I ever tell you that I was a jello shot girl at a bowling alley in college? You and I would have been very good friends. Thank you. We are. I We are. <laughs> I never party that hard. I was too busy trying not to fail my pre-med degree. Do you know how hard five semesters of chemistry is? When you're not good at chemistry, sociology major, bitch. (laughs) Damn it! Listen, I don't even use my damn. I really should have
0: been. Truly, truly, truly outrageous.
1: (laughs) Did we do it? We did. We did it. Anyway, moving on. By the way. For anyone listening who is about to go to college or currently in college and trying to decide their major or maybe switch their major, here's something I wish I had been told. Unless you are going directly to a grad school uh, or a graduate program that that requires certain prerequisites. So if you want to be a doctor, you gotta do pre-med or a dentist, you gotta hit those science credits and be pre-dental or law. There are certain things that will really help you, help prepare you. Other than that, It doesn't really matter what your degree is for a ton of office jobs. Like, you know, and I wish somebody had told me that because I think I just would have studied English and history, which are like my passions and literature. Like you said, unless you're going into a directed advanced degree that requires, it's
0: just important to learn how to learn. Like, so because you won't learn what you need to know, there's no way you can know what you'll need to know. But if you learn how to find out and critical thinking
1: skills, it really sets
0: you up and learn how to write. Please read, uh, please listen to our episode on how to take smart notes.
1: Yeah. It's really helpful. So it's worth noting again, because we're in part two, action. It's worth noting again that correct perception is a prerequisite to effective action. Because if you're all emotional and like panicking, you might just be like, just sell all the shares of the company. And it's like, calm down. Okay. Everyone has shares of a company that's listening, right? Calm down.
0: My pearls.
1: (laughs) Someone (laughs) has stolen my pearls. So remember... Action is commonplace, right action is not. As a discipline, it's not any kind of action that we will do, but directed action. Everything must be done in the service of the whole. Step-by-step, action-by-action, we can dismantle the obstacles in front of us. With persistence and flexibility, we can act in the best interest of our goals. Action requires courage, not brashness. Creative application and not brute force. Our movements and decisions define us. We must be sure to act with deliberation, boldness, and persistence. Those are the attributes of right and effective action. Nothing else. Not thinking or evasion or aid from others. <laughs>
0: Jesus Christ. He's very specific.
1: So he is. Right, so fine. I have to be perfect on my action. I get it. No, no, no. You just have to be persistent and deliberate and bold. So putting in your full effort means you, one, practice persistence, two, iterate, three, follow the process, and four, don't worry about how you look. Focus on getting the results. So, to practice persistence. I just, that makes me think of Phoebe running. Don't worry about how you look. Just run. (laughs) She's like flailing down the street with all her arms and legs waving. 100% flailing. I love it. Being persistent means trying new methods and approaches. For example, Thomas Edison experimented with 6,000 filaments before finally finding one that worked. And one of the filaments was made out of one of his worker's beard hairs. (laughs) Did you know that? No, Can you imagine you trying to replicate
0: I, that? He and I share. Yeah, that guy would have to be just growing beard all day long. Um, uh, I share a birthday with Thomas Edison. That's why I'm so bright.
1: Oh, really? You look so much younger than that. <laughs> <laughs> Get it? That was, he was got born me. in the 1800s. Oh, I, oh, I got <laughs> it. So you say you're laughing, but you look upset. So. He says, it's supposed to be hard. Your first attempts aren't going to work. It's going to take a lot out of you, but energy is an asset we can always find more of. So again, liberating. You're going to fail a lot. That's okay. If you are committed to seeing it through, then temporary setbacks aren't discouraging. They are just bumps along a road that you intend to travel all the way down. All right. Don't tell me how to feel. I can be discouraged. You can, you can, and then you can get up and try again, even while being discouraged. That's persistence. Fuck yeah. I know. It's literally the most annoying because I'm trying to muster this stuff right now in my life. So number two, iterate. Often when people want to try a new solution, they invest heavily in getting everything set up perfectly before testing it. This approach is risky because if it doesn't work, you've wasted a lot of time and resources. In Silicon Valley, people don't launch a finished product, which I did not know. They iterate fast by launching the minimum viable product, which is the most basic version of a core idea with one or two essential features. When it fails, they should ask themselves, what went wrong? What can be improved? What am I missing? He says that's why stories of great successes are often preceded by epic failures. Iterating fast helps you feedback faster and it makes you stronger from failure. Number three, follow the process. The process is about doing the right things right now, not worrying about what might happen later or the results or the whole picture. Uh, number four, don't worry about how you look. Focus on getting results. We often have an ideal image of how we'll overcome an obstacle, but life rarely works out like that. And when that happens, we become attached to our imagined method. Don't worry about the method. Focus on getting results. We wrongly assume that... <laughs> Lisa's doing the Phoebe run. <laughs> we wrongly assume that moving forward is the only way to progress, the only way we can win. Sometimes staying put going sideways, or even moving backward is actually the best way to eliminate what blocks or impedes your path. Again, that felt liberating. So for example, Martin Luther King told his followers to meet physical force with peace. And in doing so, they made the enemy seem evil and indefensible, which of course we know we're still fighting this fucking enemy, but that's a good example. But of course, some obstacles are impossible to overcome some paths are impassable. So this is where the discipline of the will comes. So now we're in the last part of the book, will. Will is all about cultivating perseverance that can overcome difficulty. Perception is the discipline for the mind. Action is the discipline for the body. And will is the discipline for the heart. Having strong will allows you to endure hardship along your journey. So the author says, will is our internal power, which can never be affected by the outside world. And he uses a lot of examples of uh, American prisoners in Viet Cong prison camps, including John McCain and this high-ranking uh, official who was captured. And they were tortured for seven and a half years. So it's like, how can you muster this strong will? So he says, will is our final trump card. If action is what we do when we still have some agency over our situation, then will is what we depend on when agency has all but disappeared. Placed in some situation that seems unchangeable and undeniably negative, we can turn it into a learning experience, a humbling experience, a chance to provide comfort to others. That's willpower. But that needs to be cultivated. We must prepare for adversity and turmoil. We must learn the art of acquiescence and practice cheerfulness even in dark times. Oh, Lisa's not happy about that.
0: Fuck your cheerfulness, even in dark times. That's like telling people how to protest. I don't appreciate it,
1: yeah. I mean, I guess i I do agree because I think you can have really strong will and you don't have to be cheerful. I mean, look at what's happening in our country, <laughs> yeah, and I don't think being cheerful is a signifier of how strong your will is either. So yeah, we'll agree to disagree, Ryan Holiday. So he says, Too often, people think that will is how bad we want something. In actuality, the will has a lot more to do with surrender than with strength. Think of the terms God-willing over the will to win or willing it into existence, for even those attributes can be broken. True will is quiet humility, resilience, and flexibility. The other kind of will is weakness disguised by bluster and ambition. See which lasts longer under the hardest of obstacles. Take Abraham Lincoln. I did not know this. Most people are unaware that he battled crippling depression his entire life. He was almost driven to suicide twice.
0: Therapists love to pull that one out sometimes when you're in the middle of depression.
1: I didn't know this. Yeah, that's, it's. I mean, come on. They're like, listen, if he can do
0: it and quote unquote free the slaves, well, why can't you just get up and go to work? That's he not did not really.
1: Saying. I mean, he did technically free the slaves, but listen to 1619, if you really no, want I know, to know. but that's what I'm saying like there. <laughs> Look what he did. And he battled with crippling depression his whole life. Yes, he did make massive leadership strides while struggling with this. His life was one of enduring and transcending great difficulty. It would be his own experience with suffering, which drove his compassion to allay it in others. He was patient because he knew that difficult things took time. Above all, he found purpose and relief in a cause bigger than himself and his personal struggle.
0: Nope. His struggles. Also, was Mary Todd crazy or was she just exhausted from dealing with an egomaniac <laughs> depressive?
1: <laughs> I ask you. You decide. The answer may surprise you. Uh, <laughs> that's the title of our next upcoming podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, yeah, that's it. Above all, he found purpose and relief in a cause bigger than himself and his personal struggles, as the nation called for a leader of mag- magnanimity during the Civil War. As crafty as he was, Lincoln's strength was his will, the way he was able to resign himself to an onerous task without giving into to hopelessness, the way he was able to rise above the din and see politics philosophically. This, too, shall pass was Lincoln's favorite saying— one he once said was applicable in any and every situation one could encounter. Lincoln was strong and decisive as a leader, but he also embodied the stoic maxim, sustain et abstain, bear and forbear, acknowledge the pain, but trod onward in your task, which actually feels totally different than practice cheerfulness in dark times. Yeah, I do. Yeah, it does. So to cultivate will, we need these five things to anticipate failure, accept what's outside your control, Love everything that happens, persevere, and prepare to start again. I don't need to love everything that happens. Thank you. So anticipate failure. Things rarely go according to plan, and we rarely get what we think we deserve. Yet people constantly deny these two facts and are shocked by what happens. To not fall into a trap, the Stoics had an exercise called premeditatio malorum, It means premeditation of evils. Premeditatio malorum. And my Patreon appears. Yes. And I say, accio, a fully edited episode. And then it (laughs) falls into my lap. You know what's present for me right now. Uh -uh. So they meditate on what might go wrong so that they're not surprised if it happens. And I actually love, love, love this so much. So... In more recent times, psychologist Gary Klein developed a mental exercise called the pre-mortem. So you might recall that a post-mortem is like, okay, something went terribly wrong. And it it was because, it's called a post-mortem because when a patient died, doctors would all gather around and talk about what went wrong so they could learn from it for the next case that came in that was similar. It
0: means after death.
1: Yeah, after death. Thank you. A pre-mortem is something where you basically, before you even start, you anticipate anything and everything that could go wrong and then make a plan for what happens if those things happen. Because the author says the worst thing that can happen is not something going wrong. Let's be honest, that's inevitable. The worst thing that can happen is something goes wrong and catches you by surprise. Right. You didn't expect. Yeah. Exactly, because unexpected failure is discouraging and it hurts. But doing a pre-mortem makes it less likely that you'll be surprised and it'll give you strength to move on and make use of failure. So I love this because it's just kind of giving you more tenacity. Yeah. He says the world might call you a pessimist. Who cares? It's far better to seem like a downer than to be blindsided or caught off guard. Plus, like, I know that he is 100% against the secret being like, don't even speak it into the universe. He's like, no, speak it and plan for it. Yeah, speak it, plan for it, embrace it, expect it to happen. And I think that's just a way more realistic view. It's more empowering. So number two, accept what's outside your control. Life is like driving. There are many things outside our control, like traffic rules. If someone we know took traffic signals personally... We would judge them insane. Yet this is exactly what life is doing to us. It Mm. tells us to come to a stop here or that some intersection is blocked or that a particular road has been rerouted through an inconvenient detour. We can't argue or yell this problem away. We simply accept it. That is not to say we allow it to prevent us from reaching our ultimate destination, but it does change the way we travel to get there and the duration of the trip. So I love that analogy. In life, we also have weaknesses. Some people use those weaknesses as an excuse for why they can't achieve their goal. Others accept their unchangeable weaknesses so that they can fully advance their strengths. For example, Thomas Edison was almost deaf, Helen Keller was deaf and blind, but they accepted their unchangeable weaknesses rather than resenting them, and that allowed them to develop different but powerful senses to adjust to their reality, which is what we talked about earlier. To prevent ourselves from feeling like the center of the universe and feeling like victims, we can use contrarian self-talk again. So here are some examples from the book. You lost money? At least you didn't lose a friend. Lost that job? At least you didn't lose a limb. Lost your house? You could have lost everything. What if I lost all of those things? Well, you could say you still have your life. (laughs) But this, this is... This is tough because we we all know that saying like, "Oh, other people in the world have it worse than me," yeah. just denies our own struggles, and that's not always helpful. So I get again, I think it's important to process the emotion. Yes, I think we get to that place, but t- but telling someone to get to that place backfires. Exactly, and knowing that that's like step three or four is helpful. Once we accept what's outside our control, we can fully advance what's in our control. So this is number three, love everything that happens. The next step after acceptance is changing our view from I must do this to I get to do this. The goal is not to tell ourselves, I'm okay with this. I think I feel good about this. The goal is to tell ourselves, I feel great about this. If it was meant to happen, it would have happened. And I'm glad that it did when it did. I'm going to make the best out of it then proceed to do exactly that. And he uses this example of, I feel like it was Edison again, but I could be wrong. One of his fires or one of his uh, factories caught fire and it was made of concrete. And they were told that because it was made of concrete, it was basically fireproof. So they only insured about 30% of it. And he lost a million dollars, which was $23 million during that day. The factory goes up in smoke and flames. They cannot get it under control. Edison told everybody in town, get your kids, gather around. We might never see a fire this big ever again. Let's watch it. I love it. It's like, I mean, come on. And then within three weeks, they were partially back up and running and creating different and better products than what they had before. It was a chance for innovation. And he was like, I'm never too old for a fresh start. Let's go. But also, I mean... That's a very wealthy man with lots of resources. So, you know, to each their own. So, remember, we don't get to choose what happens to us, but we do get to choose how we feel about it. And there's just no benefit to choosing any other feeling than good. He says, It's a little unnatural, I know, to feel gratitude for things we never wanted to happen in the first place, but we know at this point the opportunities and benefits that lie within adversities. We know that in overcoming them, we emerge stronger, sharper, empowered. Number four, persevere. We're almost done. Perseverance is determination to overcome all obstacles in your path until the very end. True perseverance can't be stopped by anything except death. In fact, one of the ways to increase your perseverance is by meditating on your mortality. By thinking about our death, we can gain clarity on our priorities and gain energy to act on them. And that is absolutely what the subtle art of not giving a fuck talks about. You're going to die, and you're not special, so make the most of this time, right? Yeah. Again, this was written two years before that. I like, was
0: ready for it anyway. to be like per- perseverance is actually overcoming mortality. If you work hard enough, if you're
1: cheerful enough, if you're hard- You is will right not place, die. You'll never die. <laughs> and then you'll always be cheerful. Another way to increase perseverance is to focus on something bigger than ourselves. When we focus on helping others, our fears and troubles diminish. If you can't solve this problem, ask yourself, how can I at least make this better for other people? And now the very last thing is prepare to start again. Just when you think you've successfully navigated one obstacle, another emerges. But that's what keeps life interesting. And as you're starting to see, that's what creates opportunities. When we know how to deal with obstacles, we can see the opportunities in them and improve because of them. We no longer are afraid of them, but instead we are excited and cheerfully anticipating the next round. Oh fuck you! So that is a brief overview of the obstacle is the way, the timeless art of turning trials into triumph by Ryan Holiday. Great if you job, want to read Misty. it for yourself, thank you. It's available on Audible.com. The free library app Overdrive, depending on your city, and wherever books are sold. And there will be a link to his book in show notes. And you can also learn more about the author at ryanholiday.net or dailystoic.com. Awesome. Misty, did this book need to be written? I think yes, mm-hmm. because remember that this was written two years before the subtle art of not giving a fuck. And I think it makes ancient stoicism really accessible in the modern day. Mm-hmm. And it's also very pragmatic and not victim blaming. I actually Mm -hmm. found it to be really empowering and flexible. So I actually feel like this was the predecessor that paved the way for the success of books like The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck and Unfuck Yourself. Mm -hmm. But if either of those books had come first, this would be a no, Mm -hmm. right? Because it already would have been covered. Yeah. What did you try to put into practice and how did it affect you? I am currently practicing shifting my perspective when obstacles arise big and small. Um, So for example, all of production has stopped in Hollywood. So, and that's a big problem, right? This pandemic. I'm not not aware. Yeah, no, Lisa is a working actor who's not working right now is not aware. So instead of of saying like, okay, I'm not going to work in my career field. I'm trying to say, okay, so this is the time for me to expand my interest and find a way to make myself even more employable. Maybe that's getting a certification or taking a workshop or starting a website or a consulting service. Instead of viewing it as an obstacle to the path, I'm trying to say, okay, this is my path now. And in dealing with this, how can I make myself even better? But I will say it is really hard when there are emotionally charged obstacles. It is really difficult to be like, how am I benefiting from this? Yeah. Also, I'm going to say that
0: this shit doesn't really apply in a pandemic. I mean, I think it could especially apply in a pandemic. We will agree to disagree on that. (laughs) It Um, depends on the problem, right? Well, I mean, I wouldn't expect anybody to be able to do any kind of this work when they're living in trauma. Yeah, exactly. Your your brain is literally being wired differently. Your brain is... Only focused on surviving right now. So things like planning ahead, big picture, setting goals, having the desire to achieve goals literally does not matter to your brain right now.
1: Well, and it's not even about goals. Like maybe you're saying, my obstacle is that I'm feeling really depressed and I'm unable to get out of bed. And maybe, maybe a way you could apply this is going, okay, how can I practice self compassion with myself when I'm having those days? How can I allow myself to lay here and have that be okay? How can I practice non-self judgment?
0: Yes, I'm going to add a, a thought in here, which we don't really talk about, and I I might pitch for us to add into the questions. Which is, and this probably deserves to be its own we, uh, weekly beef. But like, a lot of self help is through the lens of capitalism. You know. Yeah. And so like that book about goals, entrepreneurship, you know, even like the book about sleep, it's all through the lens of how to be more effective, how to be more productive, how to, you know what I mean? And it's like rest can just be rest and people can have periods of not good rest as a normal cycle of life. And if they do, it doesn't fuck them for the rest of their life. It doesn't fuck them because they're less productive at work or less capable of learning to produce. Like that's a very capitalistic mindset. And I think this pandemic has really brought that out. So Yeah, it's a great point, Lise. Um, do you feel the author missed anything?
1: Uh, I, yes. So I will say that the book was intersectional before it felt maybe culturally mandatory to be so because mm-hmm. I feel like right now anyone who's setting out to write a book is going to want to make sure they're addressing any extra layers that arise with class, with race, with education, with ability, all of those things and more. And so I really liked that he was being intersectional before it was like the necessary thing to do. Mm-hmm. It was always necessary, but you know. Widespread, and he did acknowledge that you can't help the station you're born into in life, etc. But I was really surprised that he mentioned Robert Greene and Tucker Max as mentors because I find their books to be so highly problematic. So uplifting these men in that way, especially post the Me Too movement, felt really tone deaf. To yeah, me. this was written before Me Too, twenty fourteen. Yeah, um, so before
0: yeah, Me yeah. Too. I mean, not before the inception of it, but before the cultural adaptation of it.
1: Yeah, yes. But there have been subsequent runs of this book, you know, reprints. Mm. So that felt toned up.
0: Well, it puts a lot of the lift on the audience to make the connection. Maybe they're friends. Maybe maybe Ryan really values Tucker Max's drive and that he applies some of these things. Who knows? Yeah. But it puts all of the onus on the audience to figure that out.
1: Yes. And Tucker Max's book, I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell, was on the bestseller list for the New York Times for five years, including at the number one spot. I mean, unbelievable. So Uh, for whom would you buy this book and for whom would you never buy it? Thank you for your grammar. I would buy this book for anyone who feels like they are a victim of obstacles constantly getting in their path and needs a perspective reframe of how they can empower themselves. Like if you're like, everything always is working against me, this might be a great book for you to read. And honestly, this book was nice to read during this pandemic because focusing on the positive side of adverse situations has put a little bit of wind back in my sails. I've been feeling really defeated the last few weeks and this whole pandemic has just felt so relentless. I'm like in a new wave of dealing with the relentlessness of it personally. And so it helped me to go from feeling mostly defeated to feeling like maybe there's another way to look at the situation. Slightly lessly, mostly defeated. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And what is my homework? And what what if listeners want to uh, go along with it, what is their homework?
1: I bet you couldn't guess, but it is to identify an obstacle you're currently facing or have faced in the past and to find a way to identify how it benefited you. Sounds great. And that's it.